Hello and welcome to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Segal, and today's episode is a little different. It's a special industry discussion recorded as part of a remarketing roundtable series designed to keep the conversation going in the absence of an in-person CPHI worldwide. This is an exclusive for Molecule to Market, so please enjoy and share with your colleagues. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our live remarketing roundtable. Um, this is our fourth and final roundtable of the week, or the last couple of weeks, to, inspired by, by CPHI. Um, it goes without saying, but we hope uh, you and your families and colleagues are, are safe and well um, during this time, and thank you for making uh, the time to attend. For context, uh, today we're hosting the final in a series of discussions, discussions featuring some uh, you know, genuinely fantastic uh, speakers. Uh, for context, we know how difficult it is um, and how valuable it is to actually meet people at conferences like CPHI. And obviously in the absence of those uh, conferences this year, we wanted to kind of keep those conversations going, hence the Remarketing Roundtable was born. Um, each of our roundtables kind of looks at different topic and future trends, especially on the back of what's happened in, in 2020. Uh, the sessions will be available to download via uh, the Molecule to Market podcast and also on our website to view again afterwards. So today's roundtable tackles collaboration and driving efficiency in the CDMO space. Uh, before we kind of dive into the topic, uh, we want to start with some introductions um, and these uh, delightful people that you see on the screen in front of you today. Um, I'll start with myself and then I'll pass to my co-host, uh, Laura and then we'll pass to all of our guests. So uh, I'm Roman Segal, the founder of Remarketing. Um, I oversee Remarketing's US operations uh, from Boston. Uh, for context, I've spent my entire career in the pharma and biotech outsourcing space and had the privilege of advising kind of 60, 70 plus life science brands um, on creative strategy, comms, business strategy, and all that type of stuff. Uh, during that time, I'm very proud to have built Remarketing um, into an international marketing agency that supports clients in drug development and life sciences. And uh, I'm very proud of the team that I've built. Uh, and one of those I'm going to pass to right now, which is the lovely Laura. Thank you so much, Roman. Um, my name is Laura Child, and I'm the CRO sector lead at Remarketing. I've spent my career so far, well, to date, sorry, uh, embedded in the life science sector, managing clinical trials uh, with some of the world's largest CROs. I was truly living and breathing that science space, the life science space, and I'm able to bring that to the remarketing team with regards to branding and business development in the sector as well. I'm incredibly excited to welcome our fantastic panel of guests today. We've got John, Eric, Dexter, and Mark. So John, if you'd perhaps like to make a start, I'll hand over to you. Sure, thanks, Laura. Hello, everyone. My name's John Ross. I'm the president of Maine Pharma USA and Metrics Contract Services. I've been in the pharma space for about 25 years and, and 20 of that in the CDMO sector. Um, my responsibility uh, over about the seven years I've been with, with Maine Pharma and Metrics includes day-to-day -day oversight of our contract services business, our US operations and quality, and as well as uh, our supply chain. So I sort of have that interesting sort of seat where I not only uh, have the opportunity to run a CDMO operation day to day, but also uh, procure services uh, from about 18 CDMOs in our supply network today. So uh, look forward to uh, participating. Thanks for having me. Thanks, John. Eric, we can pass to you next. Mm -hmm. So hello everybody, I'm Eric Heffler, Vice President of Manufacturing Services uh, within Resi Farm one of the biggest CDMOs in the industry. Uh, I'm overseeing a large part of our European operations and uh, I'm also responsible for a number of global networks within lean manufacturing, procurement and also sustainability. I've been with Resi Farm for five years, but in total I've been uh, with the industry for 28 years now. Excellent, thank you. Um, Dexter, if you'd like to go next. Of course. Hi everyone. Uh, so I'm Dexter Choa. I'm uh, the CEO at uh, Choa Puck. Uh, we are a uh, quite a niche uh, company in the space, I guess. We do a primary and secondary packaging of uh, medicine, uh, yeah, in oral solids, uh, injectable formats mainly. Uh, we are based uh, out of our facility in the Netherlands. Um, I've been the CEO of the company for uh, well 
all of six months, so not very long, uh, but I've been working for the business for about five years uh, and my prior experiences uh, within supply chain, uh, supply chain uh, management. Um, yeah, looking forward to a good discussion. Thanks, Dexter. And finally, last but not least, Mark, welcome. Please give us a bit of an overview of yourself and your background. Yeah, so my name is Mark Emofarb, and I'm the founder and CEO of Dyadic International. Uh, I've been here 41 years. And so we have developed a way to mass produce vaccines and antibodies and other proteins. So we kind of like are at the beginning of the food chain. You know, we develop cell lines that are more efficient, more effective. They can actually bring potentially billions of doses of vaccines in the world more affordably, more quickly. And of course, with antibody cocktails, same approach. So uh, we've been doing this a long time. We spent 25 years in the industrial biotech space and that really gave us the foundation to jump to pharma and actually change the game and disrupt things because we can make things at magnitude times the levels that pharma does quicker, faster, and cheaper at flexible commercial scales. And uh, we're looking forward to help eradicate the pandemic and make healthcare affordable for everybody on the planet, just normal prescription drugs. Thank you, Mark. Thank you everyone for your introduction. So let's, let's start the question. So the first question uh, I have today uh, to get kind of started is, has COVID caused uh, such disruption to reliability uh, then uh, that just-in-time manufacturing has no longer, uh, is no longer a viable approach? Um, John, I'd, I'd love your thoughts on, on this, this particularly the just-in-time manufacturing and how realistic that is within the CDMO space. Sure. Um, I guess I preface it with uh, just my general view that uh, I think the pharma space um, generally is a long way from a just-in-time model. Um, you know, this is a space that uh, is fraught with a lot of work in process inventory, um, pretty slow finished goods inventory turns. Um, so this is, this is really, you know, not akin to some other industries that uh, are truly just-in-time by, by definition. But that said, um, obviously there's, there's been a fair amount of disruption caused by COVID. Um, it's impacted all sorts of different organizations. Um, and it's been even surprising in some cases, um, just how critical everything needs, critically everything needs to come together in order for you know, batch manufacturing or delivery of product to, to customers and patients ultimately um, needs to, uh, to occur. Um, and I think it's really brought supply chain reliability and robustness to, uh, to the forefront. Um, in our own experience, we certainly saw some delays, um, but we didn't really see any, uh, you know, de facto outages in, uh, in almost every case. And I would say probably the greatest impact was logistics, um, particularly as passenger air travel, international passenger air travel in particular, um, no longer afforded the opportunity for cargo in the belly of those planes to, uh, to go back and forth as frequently and easily and as cost effectively as, uh, as it once did. Um, and, you know, I would say that there's, there's preparations underway right now around uh, a second wave. Um, and just, you know, as challenging as it is to implement change in the pharmaceutical supply chain, from a, a cost, a regulatory timeline, uh, complexity perspective, uh, I would argue that most companies today sort of sit in the same place as they did in March. And um, so, you know, COVID has certainly been disruptive, um, but I don't know that it's really taken very many circumstances right off the table. Um, it's caused some delays, and I think there was probably enough inherent fluff in the in the inventory channels in order for most companies to, to bridge effectively. Thanks, John. Some great points there. I'm interested, Eric, to see how your opinions line up with John's or how they may differ in fact. So mm -hmm. would you like to share? Yes, uh, I mean, to a large, to large extent, I agree with what uh, John said here. We share the same experiences uh, within Resifar. There were indeed disruptions in, in the spring but uh, in most cases, these have been relatively short in terms of time, and uh, we recovered fairly quickly. Uh, the exception, I think, would be overseas cargo, where 
it has been difficult to find air, air freight opportunities, uh, in particular to Asia, actually. But, uh, but apart from that, I, I, think, I think we have come back. Uh, whether this will be more of a long-term effect, I think is probably too early to say, because uh, like John indicated, we are waiting for a potential second wave, but we have to see how severe that will be. At the same time, uh, I think also the 3PL part of the industry has adjusted and is better prepared also to manage a situation where, where the pandemic is ongoing. What I think we will see though, is one step back when it comes to just in time in that many companies will now start to build security stock of, uh, in, of material and, uh, and packaging materials in order not to risk him to go short in case there will be a second wave. And Dexter, from a packaging viewpoint, do you have anything to share as well? Yeah, well, uh, largely share the similar similar experiences uh, as uh, John and Eric. I mean, we we've seen delays, but in uh, yeah, in, in kind of lesser lesser degrees, I, I suppose. Um, from from our our perspective. We, when it comes to our, you know, particularly niche of niche of business, um, we do try to implement just in time to to some extent. I mean, it's not not true just in time is in really from <laughs> from order to uh, that that is just not possible. We're not there yet. I, I fully agree with John that we are very far away from from that model, but we do try to to uh, to to push ourselves towards that. I don't actually uh, see that being much different moving forward. I, you know, it, it really depends, I guess, on your strategy for packaging. And if you uh, have packaging hubs for relatively local markets, or if you rely on a packaging hub, which is global, and then on, you know, like international air freight or international cargo, for, uh, you know, cargo shipments uh, to get your, your finished good to the market. But seeing as, you know, or at least from our experience, road transport was relatively unaffected, you know, from, where we are is in the European uh, uh, distribution location. From here, we could service quite a broad, broad market re relatively in a just-in-time fashion, uh, without without much impact by by COVID. Um, so yeah, that that's our, our our cup of tea, really. Um, I I think that that what what will come now in in terms of a second wave. Um, We'll see similar types of delays again with over overseas freight and international freight. I think for what particularly impacted us is what governments do in terms of hawking of stock. That was kind of, uh, I guess, the main impact for us is you know if countries start putting embargoes on particular type of products to you know kind of take the national interest first and say no, <laughs> this product is for us primarily, uh, and that will have a bigger disruption to the supply chain and the and the industry than anything that we do in manufacturing or, uh, or logistics really. Mark, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna move the question on because, and I'd like to ask you your opinion on, on the next question. You know, one of the themes actually in all the roundtables that have happened in the last few days is everyone talks about collaboration. It's actually something we hear a lot in the sector uh, kind of talk about collaboration. Are you seeing more collaboration within the supply chain? I know that the business that you've run is involved with different partners. Are you seeing a greater approach to collaboration and working together within the supply chain as a result of, of the pandemic? Yeah, I think the pandemic has changed everything. I think it's highlighted the inefficiencies of the manufacturing processes, whether it be packaging or needles or making a vaccine or the cell lines that you use to make those things. I think this day of reckoning was coming anyways because you know, I know in America, only 2% of the American public has access to biologics. It's 40% of the prescription drug budget. It's unsustainable. And now with COVID, it's completely unsustainable. And then the fear I have is if you don't collaborate and you don't, you know, the pharma companies have a history of doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. They don't get it too little, too late, but they don't care because they get paid anyways, right? They just raise the price. So, you know, our, our point is we're working, for example, on our own vaccine candidate, there's seven different people we're working with different organizations, whether it's a government, whether it's a biotech company or a university, where they're all working together to come up with animal studies. We will have 10 animal studies done on our vaccine by the end of the year. 
So there's a big collaboration. But when you try to knock on a door, big farm and say, hey, guys, you know, you're, you're going to spend $2 billion to make a billion doses of something that we can make in a month. And it's like talking to sort of the wall, right? It's, well, we know this, we have this, we're going to do this. And then, you know, in the end, who suffers? The patients, because they don't get access. It's too expensive. The government's foot the bill. But the whole world can't do what Donald Trump's done and write a $10 billion check for vaccines and say, we're just going to buy vaccines, make them all ahead of time. That's not happening in India. It's not happening in China. It's not happening in Europe, really. Some agree Europeans now are following suit because they feel like, oh, we better buy our share. But, you know, then the poor countries around the world that can't afford it. This pandemic is not going away unless everybody in the planet has access to something to make it safe and affordable. And that's kind of what we've seen. So collaborations are critical, but some people are willing to. And I give an example, and I probably shouldn't, but adjuvants is another issue, just like boxes or needles. And, you know, you, you have CEPI, who's great, and they're trying to sort of like herd everybody together like sheep to collaborate, and they've done a great job. But in the end, if you can only make so many adjuvants, you can't give them to everybody. So you can't get access to certain components. It stops the chain right there. And so together, we, we need to find solutions and we need to work together in a collaborative effort. And, and we're doing that. We're seeing good collaborations and people even that have the intent to want to do that. You know, I'm sure the people on this call recognize, you know, there, there's limitations of what you can pump out, whether it's a CRO, how many patients can you put through your facility? How many boxes can you produce, you know, out of nowhere? Because this came out of nowhere. So it, even though we knew what was coming, we weren't prepared. So... Thanks, Mark. There's some great points there. I'm really interested from the CDMO perspective, uh, John and Eric, if, if you're happy to sort of come in here and talk about any trends that you're seeing with regards to the pharma CDMO collaborations, and, and in particular, considering the vaccine manufacturing needs, but really, as, as Roman said, just sort of trends in the supply chain at the moment. John, you, perhaps. Yeah. yeah <laughs> they're, both, they're, both, they're both too polite. They were both too polite. To <laughs> John, go for it. Um, no, I, I really like uh, Mark's um, reference to sort of a, a day of reckoning. You know, this is a, this is an interesting industry in the sense that um, there's there's so many places where you know companies collaborate in in one part of the um, you know supply or delivery of of a medicine and then maybe compete in others um, with the same organization. Um, so I do think it's, uh, it's an industry where, you know, the, there is a sort of a vibrant and healthy collaboration spirit. Um, but I do think, you know, the sort of macro drivers that the pandemic has highlighted in terms of, that Mark touched on in terms of access, um, you know, the price impact of that and, you know, particularly, you know, a large, a large proportion of our businesses in the United States where, you know, the consolidation of the buying network has put tremendous price pressure on products, as well as obviously the, the rhetoric coming out of the government around pricing generally. And then there's the third element, which is just innovation and the need to sort of fuel innovation with the profits of, uh, of successful pharmaceutical products. Um, so I do think to the, to the basic question around collaboration, I do think that the pandemic has really highlighted the importance of the patient um, and maybe given us a refreshed perspective around that. And my own general feeling, and, and particularly, I see this as much as a provider of services, also a buyer of services, um, just a willingness amongst partners in this space, um, in the supply chain to really sort of understand the dynamics as they currently exist um, and be willing to think creatively around new approaches to, you know, whether it's, you know, batch campaigns relative to price, whether it's understanding the, the dynamics of, of how quickly volume can change in this space um, and, and some of the access elements that, that Mark references. Um, so I, I think it's healthy. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I think it's actually improved collaboration throughout uh, the pharmaceutical supply chain with patients in mind as a primary focus. Thanks, John. Eric, what are your, what are your thoughts? And a kind of slight follow-up question as well, Eric, just curious to know whether 
whether you're collaborating more with competitors as well, just, you know, and that might be a question. I'd love Dexter's view on that as well as, you know, are there, have you seen opportunities to collaborate with seemingly on the, you know, on the face of it, companies you compete with, but actually it turns out because of uh, demand or because of geography that, that there are actually opportunities to collaborate and work together. Now, on, on that last question, uh, I'm, I, I can, I can quite easily say that no, we haven't seen a lot of movement in, in, in that area. I mean, if there are opportunities uh, where there can be synergies in different business ideas, uh, I'm sure that will be evaluated. But uh, to be honest, we haven't seen any particular movement uh, due to COVID. I think Mark had some excellent points in what he said here, and in particular on, on access. But from a European perspective and as a CDMO, I think I see little change in terms of trends when it comes to collaboration per se. However, what we have seen is, of course, an increased uh, demand for our services and uh, more potential customers basically approaching us to just check whether we are available in case capacity would be needed. And in, in particular for potential vaccine production, we, we have been approached by many players in order to just check whether we could be a service provider here. And then a final dimension that we have seen in Europe, which uh, has not been that present before, and that, that is uh, interactions with the governments, wanting to either secure certain products with the help of, of uh, interactions in the supply chain, or again, look for potential like, emergency capacity, if that can be available as well. And that is new, at least throughout my years in the CDMO industry. Very interesting. Dexter, any, any final points on this question? Uh, well, I kind of echo what Eric said, really. Uh, you kind of summarized the European point of view quite well. I think <laughs> that has also been, been our experience. I mean, in particular regarding, you know, a, a potential COVID va vaccine and what we've seen organizations doing in terms of you know, scaling up the commercial manufacturing already, you know, even now and very early on, which is uh, definitely uh, very different to how, how we've engaged with, with customers or potential customers in, in the past. Um, in, in general, if you leave COVID aside for a minute, then we, we don't really see a, a big trend in, you know, we are only, only in the commercial manufacturing piece. Uh, so not, so I can't talk about the, the development side, of course, uh, but within commercial manufacturing and commercial logistics operation, it's been, you know, if you take COVID out of the picture, pretty much business as usual. And I wouldn't say collaboration is doing that well. I mean, there is a lot of willingness, a lot of talk, but not a lot of practice. <laughs> Thanks, Dexter. Go, John, John um, go, go, sorry, yeah. sorry, Laura. John, go ahead. Yeah, if, if I may, just, just a point to your uh, question about collaboration with competitors. Um, certainly one thing we've seen uh, since March is uh, obviously we're, we're based in North Carolina. Uh, there's a fair representation of pharmaceutical companies in that part of the United States. And, um, you know, it, all of us were deemed essential workers during this circumstance. And uh, I have seen a lot of collaboration and we've participated, you know, in industry forums at the, the state sort of association level, as well as local manufacturers and providers, just around, you know, helping each other kind of apply best practices as it relates to, you know, adhering to the CDC guidelines or the World Health Organization recommendations around just, just how to navigate um, staying operational in this circumstance. Um, and we've been pretty open and transparent with each other around that, just rec again, recognizing the importance of staying operational on behalf of patients. That's really refreshing to hear, John. So thank you very much. Um, the next question, I risk playing devil's advocate a little bit, but we're, we're wondering whether, particularly around the CDMO and CPO supply chain, uh, there's more efficiency today than there were 10 years ago. And, and also just to sort of look at through the crystal ball at what it may look like in 2030. And Mark, you're probably best placed to, to make a stab on this one, especially considering four decades in industry. So perhaps you can give us your viewpoints. Well, again, uh, you know, it, it's the day of reckoning has showed up, right? So I think the point is 
we have no choice but to make things more efficient is Moore's law, right? In the tech world, they applied Moore's law efficiently and effectively, and we all took advantage of it. Our iPhone does what we used to have to go to the Apollo spaceship with a you know, building full of computers. The biopharmaceutical companies have done it with sequencing, but the biomanufacturing, they haven't done that. They just keep doing the same thing over and over again, tweaking a Model T engine in a Tesla world. And it just is not the right approach. And until we, in the biologics, which is vaccines and antibodies, and by the way, the antibodies is a whole nother story that's, it's gonna be a nightmare that we're all gonna face for treatments, but we can get in that later. But if you don't use more efficient cell lines, you can't pump out more. It's all about biology, right? And so if you don't apply Moore's law to the manufacturing side, you can discover all these wonderful cures. But if you keep loading up cells that are inefficient and slow, and then by the time you get them through the regulatory agencies, they're just unavailable to the people or they're unaffordable. And it's, I guess if you can't, if a vaccine's not available or affordable, it's not effective because you're just not getting it. And the antibodies, which just came up with President Trump and Regeneron and the cocktails, and you're hearing all about it now, those ways of using Chinese hamster throw away cells, we can make four batches of an antibody in the same time they can make one of a Cho cell. And even if we used our own technology, the world can't make enough of this stuff. The, the facilities aren't available, the cell lines aren't available. So if you're using a slower way to make something that takes too long, pumps out too little, too late, we, 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 you think vaccines are a problem? Just if we need treatments, we really have a problem and we need to focus on that. But I think in general, and I think everybody, they have a better advantage because they're using modern, you know, they got robots, they got things differently over the last 40 years. You know, but biology, we've advanced on the industrial side, which is where we came from, because we competed with oil. We had to push the limits, right? Pharma didn't care. So they just, the regulatory agencies and everybody's afraid to think outside the box, but the pandemic's gonna force people to think outside the box whether they want to or not, because patients are not gonna tolerate it and they're not gonna pay for it and governments can't afford it. And I'm sure they're gonna have their own versions of that. But after 40 years, um, I'd say the last 20 so years, on the, on the industrial side, we took advantage of Moore's law. On the farmer side, it's been ignored and it's coming to roost. Mark, what, I just want a quick follow-up question. What could it? What could the future look like in ten years' time? You, you, you mentioned the kind of day of reckoning. What could you know? What advancements could the industry make in the next decade or so? Well, it's not even so much what do they make. It's adopting new technologies that are more efficient. I mean, I, I hate to say this, but if you look at and you go to the internet and you go to you, President Trump issued an executive order on September nineteenth, twenty nineteen, before the pandemic. That order said. We have an inefficient way of making vaccines. Same thing would go for an antibodies. We need faster, quicker ways to do it. We need more efficient cell lines that could rapidly produce things. Unfortunately, the pandemic came too quick. And so, you know, it's, in Europe, we've been working with Zappi. The Europeans were ahead of the curve. You know, the Zappi group, we work with Zenosis Anticipation Preparative Group. They were prepared. They were working for five years since 2015 to get ready. So they were ready and the Americans were asleep at the wheel. And unfortunately, uh, they're the ones with the checkbook. So, you know, if they want to sleep at the wheel, what, the world would have been a lot better off. But I think it's coming and the technology's here, but we can't be afraid of the FDA and the regulatory agencies to push new things because they don't even care. They just want a safe, effective method. And if you can prove that, they don't care how you make it. So pharma needs to just really look at, come up with a better, quicker way to make something that's affordable for the masses and just prove it's safe and effective and the regulatory agencies aren't gonna get in your way because they want, they want the same thing. They want health, you know, prescription drugs that are affordable, but they want them safe. Thanks, Mark. Fascinating insights as, as, we, as we hoped and we, <laughs> we wanted to get from you. Dexter, Eric, Europe ahead of the curve. I think there is a big difference, of course, with the type of products that Mark is talking about in terms of uh, biologics and, yes. and vaccine manufacturing. But looking from the small molecule, traditional pharma, I think there has actually been a lot of development over the last 10, 15 years. I mean, the industry has finally started to take some learnings from other industries. So if you turn back, if you go back 15 years in time and you would have looked for a pharma plant working with lean manufacturing models, 
it would have been very difficult to find something like that. But today it's not. I mean, today it's more common practice. And I'm sure that from, uh, from the small molecule perspective and finish, uh, uh, formulation and, and packaging, we, we are much more efficient today. Still, I noted a big difference when moving from a big pharma company to a CDMO. And that is that in supply chain, there are still things that are immature because in big pharma I was working on moving from uh, the traditional make to order into a pure replenishment model. But in, in the CDMO world, this is not really something that customers want. They, the customers are also actually a source of inefficiency because uh, our customers, they, they prefer to have a, a make to order model to work according to. And here, there are many, many things that can be done in terms of efficiency, of course. Thanks, Eric. Dexter, any, any thoughts on this particular topic? And especially from someone like yourself, who I know is very um, into technology and into kind of trying new things. I mean, that's something that I know Chopak's built its reputation on for many years. So any thoughts around that kind of efficiency in the supply chain and you know, what, what it could look like in 20 years time? Uh, well, in, in 20 years, uh, I don't know. I'll keep the, keep the judge out on that one. Uh, but uh, in terms of process efficiencies, I think uh, a lot of gains have been made and, and especially in, in manufacturing and in packaging processes. Uh, as such, but uh, you know, there's still large, um, uh, large gains to be had, and and lots left to be wanting in terms of supply chain planning and organization of supply chain. I guess I think Eric kind of alluded to that as well. Um, and for me, that kind of harkens back to the previous question around collaboration. I mean, what we see here, at least in uh, you know the the most reliable data I have is from from the Benelux region, but you know medicine stockouts, even if it's temporary stockouts, are at a record all time high, and they becoming more frequent and longer. And this is not necessarily a case because production or manufacturing is particularly inefficient, but really planning of supply and being able to accurately forecast the demand for particular products in particular markets is is yeah that's not not catching up and i think we can still do a lot by integrating our supply chain in, in enhancing collaboration between you know between the manufacturing and packaging side or between um supply chain planning departments um what we've been doing if you like you alluded to raman we're trying to work with some um uh, some technology tools that allows us to transparently share batch documentation and data with, with our customers, but also with our suppliers and with the, uh, and trying to integrate that with the manufacturers, which are, you know, in the, in the step before us, but you know, that's still pretty much in the, in the infancy really. And we're just, we're trying some stuff out and see if it, if it works. So for, for the limited use case that we're doing now, particularly with our suppliers and our customers is working quite well, but uh, that, that is by no means going to have a, a big impact on the on the supply chain as in general and solve the supply chain shortages. Uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, I guess to make a long point short, I, I think it, it comes down in, in a good part back to collaboration and having people and different companies talk to each other within the supply chain to get the product from you know from from API to the to the patient. Thanks, Dexter. John, any any final thoughts on this particular topic, you know, around efficiency and how things were this is ten years ago and what the future might look like? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm probably more critical of kind of where we've come from over the last ten years, and I think it's predominantly because this is an industry that hasn't really had a case for change in terms of supply chain efficiency. Um, you know, profits were high for most companies, uh, you know, and, and you could afford the inefficiency that sort of came along with that. Um, you know, to Mark's earlier comment about a day of reckoning, I think there's going to be an acceleration towards uh, a scenario whereby companies are, are focused truly on the productivity and efficiency of their supply chains. Um, you know, there's no question in the last 10 years, we've made massive improvements in terms of you know, better communication tools, better process understanding, you know, these types of things. But this is still an industry where it's abundantly hard to make change. Uh, when you're a service provider, 
uh, as Eric alluded, you're confronted with a customer that often doesn't want to change anything. Um, even if it's going to be, you know, have a cost benefit along the way, because, you know, it imparts some regulatory risk, perhaps, or it imparts just some uncertainty. So I do think the next decade is going to sort of uh, make the past decade look pretty lame in terms of progress. And uh, I think you're going to see things like dramatic reductions in lead times. I think you're going to see inventory get squeezed out of the supply chain overall. And, um, you know, because we're going to have better process understanding, we're going to have better reliability. And, um, and ultimately, you know, just the price at which we can deliver products is going to be pressured such that we have to find those efficiencies or we're not going to be competitive. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Some, yeah, some great points there. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector, the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Um, and if we look a little bit deeper into the approach, then I know that batch manufacturing in a traditional sense is, is usually cheaper to establish, but less efficient than continuous flow manufacturing. Uh, I'm interested to know how can efficiencies be applied to both models and where do the limitations of each lie as well? Uh, so Eric, perhaps you may, you'd like to share some thoughts on this. Well, in our part of the, the industry, continuous manufacturing uh, is still just a dream, I think. Uh, very few examples of companies that have, uh, have succeeded in establishing that, as far as I am aware. So we're, we're still very much locked into to the batch manufacturing model, I'm afraid. And with the regulatory environment and uh, what John said about conservatism uh, with customers, I, I think this will for CDMOs, it will be uh, a difficult change to make, I think. Fascinating. And John, you feel the same way. It's, it's a, perhaps a pipe dream, something that you see may come to fruition or something that you don't even see going near in the future. Um, I, I would definitely not say it's a pipe dream. Um, it is real, but it is it. And, you know, I think of companies like Vertex, for example, which is, you know, a, an industry leader in the pursuit of continuous manufacturing. Um, and they're sort of shaping the landscape from a regulatory perspective about how to uh, progress it through. But, um, you know, the, the forces against it, the natural tensions that are happening, I think, just around the fact that, you know, with more specialized medicine, a lot of orphan drug designations, um, you know, smaller batch sizes being in demand, um, you know, the upfront costs and complexity associated with establishing a continuous manufacturing process are in a natural tension with the direction that the needs of drug products are headed towards. Um, I think it'll get solved. But I'm, I'm with Eric um, in terms of where we sit today. Um, we're not exactly sure how that is all going to play out. And it, particularly as a service provider, um, you know, what investments we should make ahead of the curve in anticipation of where that market will go. That's interesting, John. It's, it's such an interesting point you made there around that kind of I suppose, uh, you know, the demand for smaller batch sizes in personalized medicines and yet against this, you know, need for continuous manufacturing. The irony within all this is probably the COVID <laughs> factor where we need this one product to potentially help help billions, uh, you know, the exact opposite of what where the market's actually going. Right. And, <laughs> Mark, any any thoughts on, on that particular topic and, you know, the continuous manufacturing and because uh, I know you speak very passionately about this type of thing anyway, so it'd be great to get your thoughts. Yeah, so I, I think continuous manufacturing is, it's not a pipe dream, but in our case, you know, biologics have limitations and you can push those limits to a certain point. So there's a point that the batch is more efficient than a continuous process. You can't give up yield up front for long-term continuity, but I think in our case, it's a biologic. And the, the beautiful thing that we can do is we can, we can give a cell line to China and India and Africa, the US and Europe. So we can solve the problem. One of the things we're trying to do now with this pandemic is sort of put in 
what I would say emergency vaccine facilities where, you know, like in Australia, there's a, a CDMO. And if he makes a COVID vaccine now and he uses C1, next time there's a pandemic, we just ship him a cell line, he's ready to go. So if you can make regional manufacturing facilities and they're out there, they have the facilities, that's a beautiful thing. We fit in like an E. coli tank. So, you know, everybody has E. coli fermenters and microbial been around for decades and, or maybe even hundred years. So the point here is if you can set up regional contacts and like a global infrastructure so that, you know, when something needs more, you just turn it on. Because CDMOs, that's what they do, right? They, they're contract manufacturing organizations, whether it's making a biologic or it's running a clinical trial. You know, you, there are global ones and there are regional ones and there are local ones. In this particular case for what we do, you know, the factories exist but they're not used to the new technologies and they don't create their own cell lines. So pharma, big pharma has a history of making its own cell lines, taking too long, making it themselves, going out to CDMOs, but they don't wanna give up control. Where I think if you have regional sort of like emergency, I know the US government, for example, there's a company in Florida called Oology. They spend like, I don't know, 20, 30 million a year just to keep it alive for this situation. And we're all looking at it in the past, well, that's a waste, boy, we're spending all this money. But guess what? They were right about that. So if you have in-country in or in-region manufacturing, whether it's a CRO or CMO or, or biologic manufacturing plant, you can overcome these things quickly and have flexibility. So I see, that, I see it happening. You don't need continuous processing. You just need regional processing to meet the needs of not just today, but being ready for tomorrow. Very interesting points. Thanks, Mark. And, and Dexter, just, just finally on, on this topic, obviously probably less from a manufacturing perspective and, and more from a, a, a supply chain packaging perspective. Um, and I know in the conversations we've had in the past, you're certainly seeing smaller batch sizes from memory rather than larger batch sizes. So any any final thoughts on, on, on what the guys talked about there? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, that's the nature of our business. We specialize high complexity, small batch sizes, really. I mean, that's that's the reason why you would use a, a company like us. Uh, flexibility, complexity, and, you know, the the, 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 the market scale is not, not large enough for, for our own manufacturer or integrated manufacturing and, and, and packaging. Um, so, I, you know, I, I agree with, with Mark points of view. I mean, it aligns kind of nicely what we're trying to pursue in terms of supply chain models, having... Uh, regional packaging hubs um, to you know to facilitate you know kind of uh, central packaging, but for uh, for uh, for a wide range of particular markets. So keep keep flexibility in place and in and have a facility that can deal with high levels of complexity in terms of finishing and assembling the the, the final packs. Uh, but but keep stuff relatively local, uh, and it will depend on the region of the world what that what that really means. Thanks, Dexter. So it's like it's like slight switch of gear here. Um, just wanted to ask, kind of when when considering, I suppose, depth and breadth of expertise for CDMOs and, and CPOs in particular. When does one uh, win over the other? And I'm very conscious that we have different sizes of businesses and CDMO businesses here. Well, so outnumbered. I'm hoping to get a good a good debate. So. John would, would love your thoughts to, to start off with. Yeah, don't worry, Dex. I'm probably with you on this one. <laughs> um, you know, I, I sit squarely in the in the depth category versus breadth, um, and and that really just comes from the fact that this is this is a scientific business. Um, this is a business that you know throughout the sort of development, manufacturing, and delivery of medicine. Um, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. Um, and look, as a, as a service provider, you have these conversations with clients all the time. It's not a question of, you know, will something go wrong? It's when something goes wrong, who do you want to partner with to actually solve the problem? Because over time, there will be complexities in the delivery of that medicine more than likely. And in that, in, when that happens, um, expertise solves problems more quickly than trial and error. And expertise um, that mitigates the need for trial and error along the development pathway is actually the path to speed to market, which is everybody's goal. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely in this space aligned to a model where um, you partner with experts 
um, as opposed to generalists who maybe can do everything under, you know, you hear the one-stop shop theme, um, but one-stop shop is rarely one stop. It's usually multiple stops under a parent that has sites all over the world. Um, and so I think an expertise is not necessarily universal across those various operations in the various aspects of the, the life cycle of a drug that they may participate. So I sit squarely in depth and would not advocate for breadth. Thanks, John, some great points there. Eric, where do you see yourself in the, the depth breadth tension? Well, I, I think John is right. Depth is, is a must in, in, in this industry. And uh, I mean, as a service provider, what we sell to our customers, uh, that is expertise. And that's what they are expecting from us. There is no reason why you should go to CDMO if you're not meeting professionals with uh, the right level of expertise. So I would say depth is a must. And the only way you can achieve a broad range of services is to, to be big because you have to have the, the critical mass in order to, to provide the right expertise in each different area you're active in. Thanks, Eric. Mark, uh, where do you sit on this? Well, depth is for sure, because if you don't have the knowledge, you know, it doesn't work. So give an example, dyadic, our name stands for two-way communication. So if I can't communicate with John or Eric and ask them what my needs are and they don't know ahead of time, you know, and they don't have the expertise to fulfill my needs, you're not going to get there. In our case, if the gene doesn't communicate with the cell, nothing comes out. So, but it's science, it's science-based, as John said. So first and foremost, you have to have the expertise to effectuate the job you want to accomplish, right? But you also need the breath. So it's kind of a hard thing because if you, you need the volume in order to get the cost down and keep it affordable. So, you know, I, I kind of vacillate on both and it's a happy marriage, but how we've overcome it in 41 years is we don't have the depth or the breadth, so we go and hire it. We hire specialists. If I want to take a gene and clone it into my cell line, I do the best experts in the world that can do that, and that's VTT in Helsinki, Finland. If I want to make a product and manufacture it, they're sure as hell not the ones to do that. So you can go to a Catalent or a Pathion or a Wuxi Biologics or a Lanza or smaller guys like 3P Biomins Bank. So I think John pointed out, you have to go to the people with the knowledge to fulfill the needs. It's like a puzzle, right? If you're missing a piece of the puzzle, it all falls apart. So I go with depth, but you also need breath because if you don't, you don't get the volume. And what, what, again, what good is it if you make a vaccine or an antibody and nobody gets it because you don't have enough of it or it's not affordable. So you, you kind of have to have both, but without depth, you're not gonna have anything in the first place. Absolutely, some really valid points there. Dexter, I'm pretty sure I know where you're gonna sit, but please do enlighten us anyway. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm surprised really. I thought uh, that would be a, bit, a little bit more around Mark's point of view, slightly more uh, nuanced view of, of death versus breath. Like that's that people so passionate for death, I, I will hardly uh, agree, obviously, <laughs> given the business that uh, that we are in. But I, I mean, I, I do do, fully recognize the role of a breadth of knowledge also. I mean, I without, you know, you wouldn't expect uh, somebody that actually is, I guess, in in charge or responsible to say, I need to get this product from A to B, to be able to understand in detail all the different types of steps within the manufacturing or uh, developing or logistic process, whatever. It just needs to have a general understanding on how stuff gets done. And he needs to know what are the lead times, what are the hurdles and how, how do my experts solve these problems for me in order for me to get this product to its final destination. So there is definitely room for breadth of knowledge and, and general risks within within the pharma supply chain. I think within our particular business, though, with CDMOs, CPOs, uh, we, we sell expertise and then so we will thrive on depth of knowledge. And depth seemingly wins the day <laughs> in, in that question. So out of a slightly kind of related question, but um, more more practical actually. And I'm just interested to know in terms of you know customer communi customer communications and organizing audits and actually running your businesses and you know and actually in an efficient way. How have you managed all of that, particularly with the restriction uh, of of travel and moving people and getting people to sites and 
you know, Eric, you know, Vessi Farm has 30 odd sites all over the world. How, how, how have you guys managed that, you know, which is obviously a business efficiency thing, you know, moving client projects forward. How has that experience been? And then, yeah, obviously I'd love to get everyone else's opinion on that as well. Yeah. Well, we have spent uh, a tremendous amount of time like we are doing now, sitting in front of a computer and having the faces of other people on the other side, of course. And that's what everyone has been doing, of course. But then there are certain aspects that have been more of a challenge to solve. And uh, factory audits is one of those things that you mentioned. But uh, here we've actually set up uh, a model, a virtual model, quite simple in, in, uh, in its execution, simply using a camera in production and then having a live interaction with the customer going around and looking at different things. And it has worked out better than, than expected, actually. So we've conducted a number of virtual uh, customer audits now and a couple of uh, authority audits as well. Do you think you'll go back to the old ways on that, Eric? Or do you think that that particular technique of virtual audits, for example, that's going to be here to stay? I think, uh, I mean, like a thorough audit, it can only be done with full efficiency if you do it on site, I think. Yeah. But uh, for follow-up meetings and smaller discussions, yes, of course, you can do use the virtual formats, I'm sure. And I think uh, looking forward, I, I believe that, I mean, using virtual meetings will, uh, I mean, one thing that COVID has helped is to, to really teach us how to do it. And uh, I'm sure that we will not travel to the same extent as we did pre-COVID. It's, it's funny that we had, a, we had somebody on the call on the round table yesterday that talked about um, a training manual of what what they should wear and how they should behave on on calls and then everyone else on the call said can you send us a copy <laughs> of that afterwards so so john any you know at a practical level at your site in terms of audit in terms of travel you know has it been a similar experience that eric eric said there yeah i wholeheartedly agree with what eric described um including especially the point around it sort of worked out better than we expected um you know, we've we've obviously uh, one of the benefits we had is uh, you know we had a fair amount of video surveillance around the operation. Um, we've also you know made some investments in in some really cool handheld uh, camera technology with Bluetooth microphones to sort of facilitate the process. Um, you know, we've had to be a little bit more um, you know change the approach in terms of you know sending PDF copies of procedures to customers so that they can review and then, you know, set scheduled time so that they can discuss with subject matter experts any questions that they, they have. So we have both a sort of a live interaction during a, a video tour, um, like a live video tour versus, um, you know, the procedural kind of review where we sort of schedule some structured time um, after the clients had time to review SOPs um, using sort of you know, SharePoint sites and things like that to, to, to transmit that kind of information. Um, you know, one comment I would make just as, as we've done our own surveillance of some of our suppliers, um, you know, I've seen circumstances where companies do live video and I've seen also circumstances where companies are trying to use a pre-recorded video um, as, a, as a proxy for an audit. And, my personal opinion is a pre-recorded video is not the same. Um, it just obviously creates too much of an opportunity for everything to be staged. You know, an audit's supposed to be what does it look like each and every day? And uh, so, you know, my, my strong preference is for live video and uh, that's how we do it. And I think, you know, that's, that's what most of the industry seems to be adopting. Thanks, John. Eric, oh, sorry, no, Eric, Dexter, um, any, and some of views from yourself as well in terms of audits and practicalities of, of running the business? Uh, well, in terms of audits, I don't really have anything to add, really. It's been a fairly similar story. I think everybody's in the same boat. I guess the only thing I could add to the context to John and pre-recorded videos is that we have, we have had some um, uh, regulatory agents demand submission of pre-recorded videos as part of the audit process, which I'm same opinion as you. I 
you know, okay, we'll we'll take very nice videos and, but yeah, you know, it's it's not it's not uh, it's uh, yeah, it, okay. If it helps you, great. Uh, and then they will do a live video tour uh, anyway during the actual audit. So it's yeah. it's you can see people trying out various things and kind of see what what sticks. Um, in terms of just running the the facility here during COVID times, I mean, we've uh, certainly taken uh, obviously our our uh, employees' safety primarily, but also our, um, our uh, I guess, uh, societal duty to deliver medicine um, quite seriously. So we've uh, organized all of our measures according to keeping the facility up and running and uh, to the best of our of our, our abilities. Um, so I, I maybe, uh, uh, anyway, I'm sure that the others are, are the same, uh, but that's where we as an industry differ very much from our colleagues in, in other sectors who, uh, you know, might, might not spend time in the offices. Oh, I'm, I'm in the office today. And I mean, I don't strictly have to be here per se, but, you know, some, some things help support our operations and help support the people that have to be on site because, you know, they operate the machines. I think it's important to come and, 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 and keep, keep going as much as, as possible the way, um, well, not the way it was because the wrong the wrong phrasing but I, I think I think that the panel get gets the idea I mean we take very seriously that we pack medicine and that patients depend on us and want to keep that going as as well as possible thanks Dexter so we have one final question then and, and perhaps as you answer it you can include any closing remarks you may have as well uh, within the pharma industry, we hear a lot about data and digital analytics and how they have the potential to accelerate product development, sometimes quite significantly. So I'm really interested as to how this sort of digital intelligence can be utilized, um, firstly from, from Mark's point of view, but also from the CDMO and CPO point of view. How do you actually feel and see uh, a sort of data analytics improving or accelerating any work that you do in that sort of product development life cycle. So as I say, Mark, if you'd like to maybe tackle this question and then just include any closing remarks as well, that would be fantastic. Yeah, well, obviously AI and digital analytics is changing the world everywhere, whether it's medicines or otherwise. And I think that the biggest problem that we have is that we have so much information, we can't digest it. So it's sort of like almost paralyzing because you know it's what decision you got 300 choices of a gene sequence that look kind of this is going to create a vaccine or an antibody that looks like this. You know what? Until you put it into a cell and you make it and put it in a human being or an animal model, you have no idea what it really comes out to be. So we're a little limited by that. But from the global closing remarks, is I think that the industry, as Dexter pointed out, is this industry has has come up and done an incredible job from all angles to try to help eradicate the horrific situation we're all in, trying to keep the chain of command and the supply, in our case, in the getting a vaccine even out. And, and even with warp speed with the US government, whether you, whether you like Trump or you don't, I don't think anybody else could have operated anyone at warp speed, whether it ends up being good or bad, we don't know yet. But you know, it's really about speed and everybody has put 24 seven I know I'm up at six in the morning here at eight o'clock at night. I think everybody on this phone and everybody in this industry has their heart and their soul into making sure that we get out of this situation as quickly, as safely, and as effectively as possible so that life can get back to normal, but not even so much life get to it, just to save lives and to reduce pain and suffering. And the benefit of all, there is a silver lining. The silver lining of this pandemic is it's opened up the eyes of the public and even maybe the government's going to pay attention for once, that we need a better way to bring healthcare to people. And I think the social unrest that's been going around the world, especially in America, is really in, in some ways about healthcare and the unaffordability or the excess. And that's got to change. I think everybody on this call, and I think everybody in the industry, I, I think believes in their heart that it has to change and it's going to change. And together we can make a change. And I think that's the goal. I know that's dyadic's goal, that's my personal goal, is to make healthcare affordable for patients globally and accessible. And I think the industry's done a great job in the pandemic to, to deliver on that promise. So, 
Great comments. Thanks for sharing that, Mark. And I'm sure we all absolutely agree with, with everything you said. John, from, from your perspective, both from a digital analytics perspective and how, how the industry can do more with data, but also any closing remarks uh, from yourself? Sure. Yeah, I really appreciate what Mark said there. and I, I fully wholeheartedly back it. Um, it's interesting, you know, from a big data, data analytics perspective, um, we're probably not sort of leading edge. Um, and I think that's probably just akin to the type of requests and services that, uh, you know, that we provide. Um, but it's interesting, you know, somebody once said to me that, you know, when they, when they design an airplane on a computer uh, and build it, the very first time they go to fly it, it actually flies. Um, whereas, you know, the notion of sort of modeling and simulation in pharmaceuticals um, that the very first time you actually make the batch um, doesn't necessarily work. Um, and so there's still a vast amount of trial and error um, in this space. And obviously that brings incredible amounts of cost and time and controls around the nature of what we do. So I think, I think from a visionary perspective, and, and in full respect to what Mark described around, you know, biologics, which are living organisms, um, and the complexities that that brings, um, you know, I think against the vision that there could be modeling and simulation that the first time a pharmaceutical is made, it actually is effective. Um, I think that's the panacea. And I think that's, you know, what a lot of companies, you know, see as, as far out there. As a service provider, it's always tricky to be kind of on the leading edge of some of those innovations, right? Because you have to provide a service that is in demand as opposed to being seen as providing a service that uh, companies can't, you know, sponsor companies can't quite get their head around and can't imagine a regulatory path to get approval. Um, so that's kind of the natural tension as being a service provider. Um, so well, that's, that's just a, a point of view just around sort of big data and, and, and our space, particularly on the CDMO side. Um, you know, I think Mark's remarks just around the, the industry and the response to COVID. Um, honestly, I've been almost energized, re-energized further just by the role that we play and kind of the, you know, the, the team that we have and the, the team that I'm seeing across other players in the industry. Um, you know, I feel really good about the industry we're in the ambition that we have towards helping patients and solving this problem, but not, and, and the learnings that are coming from it that are gonna help us when we get back to sort of routine therapies, you know, routine activities in pursuit of other additional novel and, and continued supply of existing therapies. Um, so I think that's probably it. I think we're gonna get a whole lot smarter as a result of this um, and come out of it stronger as an industry overall. Thanks, John. I love what you said there about that kind of re-energized and, and almost a sense of pride in, in the sector that we work in at the minute. I mean, I, I was interviewed by a journalist yesterday and he, he was asking what, what we did as a business. And I told him that we had clients on the front line making potential vaccines. And it was something that he could tell straight away. It was something I was very, very passionate and proud of that, you know, not something I never thought would, would happen in my lifetime. So uh, thanks for sharing that. And Eric, any, any closing comments and, and any comments about data generally on, on how it can improve efficiency? I, I think in terms of digitalization, at least for us, we, we are just beginning the journey, I think. We have uh, a lot of things to develop and learn on how to use AI and become more efficient based on that. But there are some emerging steps. I mean, we, we are working with establishing process parameters by using larger data sets now. So really testing the robustness of, of a manufacturing process. So we are learning, but uh, a long way to go, I would say. And in terms of uh, closing remarks, I mean, uh, both Mark and John have, have already summarized in, in an excellent way. But I, but I think what the, what the pandemic has shown to the industry is both our strengths and some of our weaknesses. And uh, the important thing now is to continue to build on what we're good at, but also improve where we have seen that there are weaknesses in our supply chains and way of operating. And uh, I think it will help the industry to, to continue to become more efficient. Thank you, Eric. 
Dexter, sorry, hard act to follow after those three comments. <laughs> but yeah, nevertheless. <laughs> thanks, Ram. Go, go for it. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, on in terms of data, I mean, we don't deal much with real big big data sets. Uh, Oh, I guess, uh, by by nature of, of business, but we do have a hand in using uh, technologies in in various different ways, uh, in terms of for our own internal kind of uh, planning and utilization of our our equipment, uh, but also the the you know the the tool I alluded to earlier um, that we use for collaboration with with suppliers and and, and customers and and other CMOS, um, and trying to share information. Or you try we're exploring how. How blockchain can help us be real transparent and, and secure with data and, and provide with the, uh, an actual uh, you know secure audit log along the way between different various companies. Um, so we you know we're trying to use uh, uh, various aspects of I guess the buzz technologies in, in useful and practical ways um, and 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 starting our, our journey there. Um, also, still I mean just like everybody else, I think uh, in the panel along. A long way to go, uh, but we're we're setting some some good, uh, good good first steps. Uh, in terms of closing remarks, I yeah, I, how can I follow up on this? <laughs> on the comments of these esteemed gentlemen, I that's uh, I certainly I also will wholeheartedly agree with what's being said around the, the pandemic. I think the only thing I would add is is maybe um, uh, add to John, uh, which as a you know a service provider, I think. There is room for service providers to push the boat uh, and push uh, push what we offer to our customers, um, you know, to the next the next step. I think they they might not realize they want it, but maybe they will at, at some point. You know, I, that's that's kind of what we we try to do. So it's personally it it affects me uh, personally in the way we try to run 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 Chopak is you know try think of some crazy ideas, see if it works, and then if customers want to buy it. And even if we are a service provider, we deal with all the problems that come with that and that customers don't understand it. And we have often in our history missed the boat very dramatically, but uh, we try, try to do it. And I certainly think that, you know, the pharma supply chain as a whole can learn a lot from the CDMOs and CMOs and CPOs that are the diligent, reliable service providers that it relies on. Uh, and not just look at the, the big pharma brands for its uh, success. Thanks, Dexter. Well played. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. We are out of time. And uh, all that's left for me to say on, on behalf of Laura and I is thanks to our amazing guests today who've all uh, been very generous with their time and, and given some fantastic insights. Uh, we hope you found our roundtable of value. And I'm um, sad to say this is the last in our four roundtables, but you never know. We might be back for a new season uh, if, they, if they've gone down well. Just a reminder that the sessions will be available to download on the Molecule to Market podcast and available on our website in the next couple of days. So thanks again to all of our guests. Uh, stay safe at home and we'll see you soon. again thanks so much for tuning in to molecule to market we hope you enjoyed today's episode you can find more shows on spotify apple podcast or wherever you like to listen get in touch with us on our website molecule to marketpod.com and follow us on linkedin or twitter and we will see you again next week Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.